Well, I'm really grateful, and I know you are too, that we can all be back in the same room, even if a little bit spread out. Um, you know, I've been I was sharing with, I think maybe Laws this week, one of my favorite quotes about church is, is from Michael Horton, who, who said, he's, he's talking about heaven, basically, and he said, it's not going to be like churches today. Um, after all, who would want to go? Which is a, a recognition of the weaknesses and, and hu- humanity of what we're doing here. But at the same time, I, it's been impressed upon me, especially being without, that this is a unique thing that God has given us. And really, in, in a wonderful way, it is the time in our week where heaven touches earth, where saints are assembled, where we hear from God, where we commune with Christ in a way we can't in any other way besides the supper. We we have this time where it's a foretaste of, of heaven. And uh, th- that is glorious, unique, essential. And so I'm really grateful that we can be uh, back together this morning. And so uh, let's go ahead and, and get into Galatians. And we'll, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into chapter 4. Our Father, I ask that you not let us be ones who neglect our great salvation. Instead, let us revel in it. Let let us marvel in it and wonder at it and and rejoice in it. And press upon us the the beauty of a love that began in eternity past. The the absolute genius of of the plot of history which you have written and unfolded for us. and, And the timing of the fullness of time that we read about in this passage this morning and the humble glory of God incarnate and the wonder of uh, that he died perfection on behalf of, of sin by your spirit compel us to ponder the details of your redeeming work and to rejoice and to delight in our salvation and I ask that your word going forth this morning would affect some of these things in our hearts and minds uh, even this morning. And may they overflow into the week, into our interactions, our affections, our vocations, and our relationships. Uh, for the glory of Christ and for our joy in him, we ask these things. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Galatians 4, 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Praise God. This is His Word. You may be seated.
Um, this epistle, Galatians, is an epistle of love. It's sharp in its tone at some points, but Paul's zeal bubbles up really from a great well of compassion for the Galatian people. Uh, like us, we would do everything possible in our power if a friend or a son or a daughter were being kind of drawn like a moth to a flame to something dangerous or unhelpful. Uh, we, we would do everything we could to prevent them from going that way. And we would do some of what Paul's done in this letter. We would rebuke and correct. We, we would uh, try to get them to, to see the error of their ways which Paul has definitely been doing. But we would also, I think, ideally try to show them how compelling life away from the flame, if you will, is. How good it is to walk away from that danger. He wants these people to understand uh, the positives of their salvation. And, And the beauty of our salvation in the true gospel is so compelling and so appealing that if properly understood, it will capture our affections and imagination uh, for the rest of our lives and into eternity. It will, if we understand it properly, capture our gaze when distractions of worldliness or or other false teachings or gospels enter our periphery. It's that compelling. It will hold our attention. It will change the way we think. It will change the way we live. It will change the way we treat people. And so I think I oftentimes see so much error in the world that I, I focus so much on the correction rebuke side and forget that probably meditating on the positive side of our salvation is far and away should take up more time than the, the correct and rebuke side. But I think, I think I get that flipped on its head more often than I should. We should spend much more time meditating, rejoicing, enjoying our great salvation. So Paul wants us to understand and apply the wonder and the beauty of our salvation. In this passage, he preaches to us that we were once slaves and now we're sons. We've gone through this great transition of slaves to sons. We were enslaved to the law, to sin, and our fleshly desires. But God enacted an eternal plan. He sent his son. He redeemed us from our enslavement, adopted us as sons and daughters, and thus made us heirs of a glorious inheritance. That's an astounding salvation, one we should meditate on, and I hope that this morning uh, will facilitate and, and enable us to do so a little bit more throughout this week. And so the outline for this morning is we're going to look at that change. Point number one is looking at who we are or who we were before Christ. And that is we were in bondage, enslaved to the law. Who we were, we were enslaved. The second point is, is how that changed. The means God used to change that, that is, Christ redeemed us from the law. So who we were, how that changed, and who we are now. That is, we've been made heirs, sons, through adoption. Who we are now is we have been made sons. So we're going to look at that transition from slaves to sons. So point number one, who we were, we were in bondage under the law. Uh, 
the beauty, I think, of the gospel is lost on us if we don't understand our need for the gospel, our need for salvation. And I think, isn't that the problem when we're trying to present the gospel to our friends and neighbors in these times, is they think that they're already good with God. They don't understand their need for the gospel. They're unaware that they are in change with no possibility of escape. And they really have a sense uh, of Stockholm Syndrome. They think their captor has their best interest in mind, and they love their captor. Paul begins explaining our condition by uh, expounding what he meant for, in chapter 3 about the attendant or the guardian, that the law is the guardian or attendant for us. He begins by explaining a little bit more what he meant by that metaphor. He says, I mean, in verse 1, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Basically, he's saying that child under that form of supervision, though he, he technically is the heir of everything, He's not a whole lot different in practical terms than the slave. He doesn't actually own anything. So he draws out this illustration. It's an illustration. He draws it out and applies it to the Christian. He says in verse 3, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, when he says we, when we were children, I think what he means is at that time when we were under the guardianship of the law before we knew Christ. That's when we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Uh, And there are a lot of opinions about what the phrase elementary principles of the world means. Um, Tom Schreiner indicates that there's, in the ancient sources, a long history of referring to these elements, elementary principles, as the elements that make up the physical world. You know, earth, air, fire, water, um, which of course makes not a whole lot of sense in this context that that has the Mosaic Law center stage. I think what you can get a hint of what he means by looking down in chapter 4 to verses 22 and 23, where Paul contrasts Ishmael and Isaac He says, one is born in the flesh, one is born of the promise. He goes on to say, allegorically, Ishmael is the law and Isaac is the promise. And what's relevant here is is this word flesh. Ishmael was born of the flesh. And I think that's, that's the issue. I think the elementary principles of the world in this context are primarily talking about those things which are of this world only, of the flesh, of the world Um, So whether you're a Jew committed to finding peace with God through your own law-keeping, or whether you're a a Gentile dedicated to your own lusts, you're only consumed with those things which are of this world and not from heaven above. Um, So I think that's what Paul's getting at there. Um, And I think his point ultimately is that before Christ, we were in bondage. We were enslaved. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, to the law and to the flesh. 
And we're so conditioned, I think, to believe that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want to do. Uh, And we don't realize that it's our wants that enslave us. We're so in love with the present world that we're blinded to the inheritance that awaits us. Uh, It's it's like the prodigal son. I, I want to cash in now. And we think that our lusts and our desires are serving us all the while we're serving them. Or while we think we're serving God by making ourselves pleasing to Him by law-keeping through the law, we're actually enslaved to the law itself. So these things enslave us. We, we do their bidding. We wait on them hand and foot because ultimately they are our masters. And we're blind to it. I think kind of like a tribe's people secluded on some island out in the middle of nowhere. And they are confined to their little world with no broader conception of what the world contains. They can't even conceive of a world with its complex infrastructure, economy, politics. For them, their world is that island. And they don't know any different. That Paul says, was our condition before Christ, hopelessly confined and enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, captivated by them with no ability or eyes to see a heavenly perspective. Uh, But as Christians, that has changed. We're no longer under that bondage, which brings us to point two, that is, we've been redeemed. Point number two, how our slavery has changed. That is, Christ has redeemed us. Uh, we're a people bound to this world. And so I think there's a beauty to the gospel in that salvation comes from something completely otherworldly in this text. God, in His infinite wisdom, executed an eternal plan to redeem us from bondage. He says, when the fullness of time had come, when the appointed moment in history, there was a fullness of time. God appointed that fullness of time. He had an eternal plan. And when it came, God sent His Son to wear our chains. Uh, to, To wear our chains, He had to be like us. In fact, He had to be us. He had to be human. So, he says, he was born of woman. And also, he was born under the law. Notice the prepositions here in this passage, uh, specifically the word under. Verse 2, we are under guardians and managers. Verse 4, Jesus is under the law. In verse 5, he came to redeem those who are under the law. So I think we can kind of safely say those terms all essentially refer to the same thing, under slavery or bondage to the law and to sin. Um, Jesus wasn't enslaved to sin, but he came under the law. Calvin points out, he says, by putting on himself the chains, he takes them off from the other. When, when He took our chains and wore them, He took them off of us. So Christ chose to become liable to keep the law that exemption from it might be obtained for us. 
Otherwise, it would have been no purpose that he should have come under the yoke of the law, for it was certainly not on his own account that he did so. <laughs> he didn't come up to, to submit himself to the law for his own sake. He did it for us. He did it to take the law off of us. And he's redeemed us, he says. He says to redeem us from the law. And the act of redemption is that act of paying the price to liberate a slave from his master. And in this context, I think the master is the law and the, per- the price is perfection. Fulfill the law perfectly. And Jesus paid that price of, of perfection by completely fulfilling the law for us. Thus he took upon himself the chains, wore those for us, and then, of course, he burst the bonds by fulfilling the law. And we should always sit up and take notice, I think, when we see the word so that in Scripture, so that denotes purpose. Purpose is always good. It's skeptic- people are skeptical in our day and age of purpose. Is there actually a, an ultimate purpose? And we see purpose all over God's Word. We have here, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the reason God sent His Son at the proper time to redeem us, was so that we might receive adoption as sons. Uh, that, that's striking. He's saying one of the end goals of redemption was that God Almighty wanted to be our Father. That's why He sent His Son. So He could be our Father. I, I think you know, the best... Michael was saying this morning how the Bible's not a boring book. It's, it's us that's the problem. This is one of those cases. Uh, the best fairy tale writer couldn't come up with a story that good, that the, the God of the universe wanted to be our Father. Why would he do that? I don't know. <laughs> but God is love the Bible says, and it's an expression of love placed on us before we were even born. Ephesians 1, we know it well, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons. Why He placed His love on me before the foundation of the earth, I have no idea, but He did. Praise God. So Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand that we who were enslaved have been freed. And how that change has occurred is a testimony to God's fatherly wisdom and God's fatherly love. That God in His eternal wisdom sent His Son to take upon Himself our flesh, to wear our chains, to take upon Himself the law, to redeem us from the law, so that we could have adoptions as sons, that we could be the Father's sons and daughters. So let's think for just a moment how beginning to wrap our minds and our, our hearts around this information and to apply it to our lives uh, impacts our day-to-day. Uh, first of all, it removes any cause for boasting. Um, did you notice in this text the part that we play in our redemption? There isn't one. God does everything. He, he planned it. He decided when the fullness of time would be. He sent forth His Son. Jesus took on our flesh. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. God has taken it upon Himself to redeem sinners. 
I have a, I have a condition. I've self-diagnosed it. Uh, extreme do-it-yourselfer syndrome. I love to take on projects and do them all by myself. Uh, and if it's a project that's kind of difficult to accomplish by itself, I like to do that even more. Uh, or especially if it's a creative process. I can identify some noble reasons why I like to do that, but really the reason I like that is because I like glory. I like solo credit. Wow, you did that by yourself? Even more, I think I like to prove to myself that I can do it alone. It's extremely satisfying to take sole creative credit for something beautiful. Uh, you know, we, to say that that is a product of me. That is a product of my imagination and creativity. So I think, again, there may be parts of this syndrome that are virtuous, but mostly I think it's a self-aggrandizing selfishness. And when applied to salvation, do-it-yourselfer syndrome is damning. We can't do it ourselves. God saves sinners and we don't help Him out. And so praise God that the true gospel removes from our reach any cause for boasting. Now, the second way that our understanding, our redemption impacts us is, is that we get to call God Father. I brought it up several times over the past few weeks, but I can't get over how great our adoption is. Adoption is among the most personal and relationally rich aspects of our salvation. and It is often overlooked. I think Galatians is typically viewed as the justification book. And the more I get into it, the more I think it's the adoption book. It's truly amazing that, that when we, get, we, we pray, we get to address God as Father. And, and when we think about how Jesus is described in Scripture, uh, he, he was with God and He was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And the fact that that person, God, Creator, second person of the Trinity, humbled Himself to take on our flesh, to bear our bonds, and that we could call Him brother, that we get to call Jesus brother, that is amazing to me. Again, the, the best of human authors have never imagined a, a more wonderful story. So, we were slaves, we've been redeemed, and now, point number three, we uh, have been changed into sons. That's who we are now. We've been made sons and heirs through adoption. How can we know that we've been made uh, sons of God? In verse 6, Paul tells us that it's because we call out to God as Father that we know we are sons of God. He says, and because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
the natural impulse of a child in distress, say a child who's fallen and skinned his knee, is to call out mommy or daddy. That's the natural impulse. And Sinclair Ferguson points out in his book on the Holy Spirit that whenever this term uh, crying, crying out, krazo is the Greek word, is used in the New Testament, the atmosphere, he says, is not tranquility but crisis. So it's when we're at our lowest, not our highest, when we're at our lowest, when doubts are abounding, when we don't know what to do, that our hearts then naturally cry out to God, Father, Father, help me. And it's amazing. Again, this is something that we share with our elder brother. This is something we share with Christ. Paul calls it, in verse 6, the spirit of his son. And isn't this exactly how Jesus responded at his most desperate moment? In Mark 14:36, he says, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. So the evidence that we are sons of God is that we share in the same spirit that Jesus had, That is, and, and we respond in kind. We respond like he responded. Isn't that true of regular human adoptions as well? An adopted son or daughter may not share in physical resemblances or personality similarities to biological children, but it's amazing, in a moment of distress, will they not call out just the same as a biological child? Father, help me. Now we could note here that an unbelieving hypocrite could call out Father. But the true believer, the true son, does so precisely because the Spirit of God is within him, testifying with his spirit that he is a a child of God. It's interesting, in a parallel passage in Romans 8, Paul says that we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Did you notice the difference between that text and our text in Romans 8, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But here in our text, it is the Spirit was sent into our hearts who cries, Abba, Father. The Spirit is the crier in Galatians, where in Romans 8, it's us by the Spirit. But that is, in fact, how a testimony works. In Old Testament law, there were two witnesses to testify to the facts. And again, in Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit, he points out that there is one cry, but two sources. And that the consciousness of the believer and the ministry of the Spirit cry out together. Now Paul brings his slavery illustration to a conclusion in verse 7. which the conclusion is that our status has been changed from sons to slaves. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. He says, if we're sons, then we're heirs. So he wants us to understand that our status as heirs is, is not through achieved through working for it, or keeping the statutes and rights of the Mosaic law, 
We who were once slaves have been made heirs. We have been made sons by God. The theme of this inheritance uh, bookends this passage. He begins in verse 1 with this idea, this word heir, and he ends in verse 7 with the word heir. You ever have those daydreams where you kind of imagine that some rich uncle somewhere has died and in his will he said, I leave my entire fortune to Zach Cruz. Um, You ever have those? Come on, be honest. Well, that happened to a young man at the age of 18. Uh, Not from an unknown uncle, but um, this man's name was Gaius Octavius. He got news that his uncle had been murdered. And when the will was read, kind of a surprise to everyone, his uncle posthumously in his will adopted him as his son and left three quarters of his fortune to Octavius. Now, Octavius' uncle's name was Julius Caesar, a man who controlled most all of the Mediterranean world. Uh, It's impossible to convert his wealth into today's numbers, but he was one of the richest men who ever lived. Left 75% of his wealth to Octavius. Octavius went on to become the first emperor of Rome. He was the emperor at the time of the birth of Christ. We know him better by the name Caesar Augustus. We talk about an amazing adoption and inheritance. Of course, I don't think I'd want that one in particular. But nevertheless, it's tough to beat in worldly terms. I find it a completely delightful irony, one that's been crafted by the imagination of the divine playwright of history, that only a few years after this Emperor Augustus, one of the greatest, one of the most wealthy men, greatest empires of the world, after he received an inheritance that far exceeds most of what we can even imagine, a wrinkly, crying baby with nostrils, fingernails, was born to a peasant girl in a, in a barn. I just think God's sense of the fullness of time is is delightful and ironic and somewhat humorous. And in the end, it would be that baby who would cause us to receive an inheritance that makes Augustus Caesar look like a pauper. That's not a compelling salvation. If that doesn't take our eyes off, off of the paltry dainties of this elementary principles of this world... If it doesn't lift our eyes and our hearts and our hands toward the promised inheritance of the sons of God, then our enslavement is indeed very great. Caesar Augustus was among the most worldly rich this world has ever known. But he was a man in bondage to his own efforts, to his own sin. And our inheritance is far greater than he could have ever imagined. So I encourage you this morning to rejoice in your inheritance, to live for it, to hope in it. It's far better than anything this world can have to offer. After all, what does it profit a man, right? 
One day you and I will receive all the blessings of the sons of God. And and for now, this earth will grow strangely dim. Last week I mentioned uh, J.I. Packer's comments in Knowing God about adoption that it's so often overlooked. And today I'd like to just close by reading one paragraph of that to you. He says, uh, Do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. For this is the secret of, uh, for this is the Christian secret of a happy life. Yes, certainly, but we have something both higher and profounder to say. This is the Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. Amen.